1: Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobana Xavier and I'm one of your co-hosts of this podcast channel. Thank you for joining us today and I hope you're staying well wherever you are. As you may know, the New Books in Islamic Studies Network welcomes authors who have published a book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies as it is broadly defined and we have a conversation about their book. The Sufi Paradigm and the Makings of a Vernacular Knowledge in Colonial India, The Case of Sindh, 1851 to 1929, which is published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020 by Professor Michelle Bovin, who is the director of the Center for South Asian Studies and affiliated with the French National Centre for Scientific Research and the School of Advanced Studies in Social Sciences, maps the construction of a vernacular knowledge as opposed to colonial knowledge, in Edward Said's terminology, of a complex Sufi paradigm Sindh by both British Orientalists, such as figures like Richard Burton, a controversial figure, but also Sindhi intelligentsia like Mirza khalek Examining the historical period from 1851 to 1929 during the British colonial control of Sindh, the book argues that though the British were not interested directly in Sufism, their investment in learning languages such as Sindhi and learning about culture for administrative purposes led to a consequential engagement with Sufi literary traditions. One of the Sufi texts that was particularly engaged with was the poetry Shah Joe Russillo by the Sindhi Sufi poet Shah Abdul Latif. In tracing the lives of Sufi textual and print materials written by both Orientalist and indigenous Sindhi literati, Bovin captures the complex ways in which a Sindhi Sufi paradigm was constructed but also vernacularized and how it was informed by Hinduism, Ismailism, and Sikhism but also the mediums of printing presses, libraries, and bookshops. The book's rich textual and historical analysis provides productive insights to how we can think about the formation or construction of Sufism as a devotional regime of knowledge and how notions of Sufism were informed not only by mystical philosophies and religious practices, but by Sufis themselves and also by broader processes of colonialism, literary practices, and social and economic realities that informed landscape of Sindhi, of colonial Sindh. The book will be of interest to scholars who uh, write and think about Sufism in South Asia, both in historical and contemporary contexts, but also broadly think about uh, Islam in historical South Asia. In our conversation today, Professor Michelle Bauvin and I spoke about these ideas of vernacular knowledge and the framework of Sufi paradigm that he introduces in his book, the religious topography or landscape of colonial ascent and what makes this a unique case study for the arguments that he's making. And we also uh, discussed the role of British Orientalists, such as controversial figures like Richard Burton, and how they informed um, how we think about Sufism, but also how indigenous Sindhi voices counteracted the construction of Sufism in their own interpretations and their translation works that they also did as well. So, with that further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Michel Bovin about his book The Sufi Paradigm and the Makings of a Vernacular Knowledge in Colonial India, The Case of Sindh, 1851 to 1929. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, The Sufi Paradigm and the Makings of uh, Vernacular Knowledge in Colonial India, The Case of Sindh, 1851-1929. to We have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies that we started our conversation with something a little bit more personal, so I wonder if you could tell us um, what made you become a scholar of South Asia, of Islam, um, and broadly religions, and what led you to writing this particular book?
0: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Okay, so uh, as you can guess, it's a pretty long story, but I shall uh, give it short. Um, Now, because, you know, I started to study uh, history in a French university. I was interested by history uh, since childhood and also i was very interested by uh non-european societies and cultures so even when i was young i started to read different books uh, related to uh, different uh, non-european traditions and uh, also um, it was exactly when i was started to study at the university i also started to travel outside of Europe and I went to visit some uh, countries uh, from North Africa, uh, such as Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, etc. And so uh, it's how I went to be in touch with Muslim societies, Muslim cultures, and even Sufism. Although the first time I went to a Sufi uh, place in uh, southern Morocco, I didn't really know it was a Sufi place uh, because I have never heard about. But so when I went back to France, uh, of course I started to look for books, this and that, and I started to read books on Sufism. So it was many years back. And um, I was also interested almost from the beginning by knowledge. Uh, How do the people know what they do and why they don't know what they don't know? And, uh, you know, in the um, early uh, 1980s, there was a very important book published in French by a scholar, a specialist of Muslim South, Thought his name was uh, Henri Corbin, Henri Corbin, and he did publish a book titled History of Islamic Philosophy. So I was very interested by this book, and especially uh, because, in fact, Henri Corbin was a specialist of Persian and of uh, Shia uh school of islam and so in his book about the history of islamic philosophy he devoted a main part to Shiism. and in those years it was not so common and i started to be interested by different uh, shia schools among the Muslim philosophy, among the Muslim world. And especially I was attracted by the Ismaili's of Shism. So, okay, I I was uh, doing this study, but very soon I specialized in uh, history of the Muslim world because I was a student at the University of Lyon in southeast of France. And there was a kind of growing department of Islamic studies, or study devoted to the Muslim world. So uh, very soon I started to specialize. I did study, I took courses uh, devoted to uh, history, uh, uh, medieval history of the Muslim world, contemporary history of the Muslim world, arts in the Muslim world, etc. And um, I did my uh, master thesis on the, Ismaili and especially on how the French Orientalists represented uh, Ismailism starting with um, the early uh, eight, uh, no, 19th century when the French Asiatic Society was created and including uh, Henry Corbyn's on representation of Ismailism and when I uh, reached when I started to work on a PhD I wanted to work on the Ismaili. First I wanted to work on Iran and I wanted to go to Iran and uh, so I've got a funding from a French institution but uh, unfortunately you know it was in the early 1980s it was not a very good political time I'm referring to the relations between France and iran so finally uh, iran govern Iranian government closed the french institute in tehran so i could not uh, uh, um, do this study about the ismaili and iran so i uh, decided to shift it to the to shift to the east and to go to india i started first to work in uh, bombay mumbai on the Ismaili, but because since many work have been devoted to the Ismaili, but you know, in the classical age, it is a medieval times, my main question only was what are now the ismaili uh what 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 is their philosophy uh what are where are they settled mostly etc and then uh, from uh, Mumbai also I started to visit Karachi and uh, see the south uh, the southwest uh, east sorry province uh, of Pakistan, and I wanted to devote a kind of historical and anthropological study of the present-day Ismaili of South Asia. And uh, from Karachi, when there is the headquarters of the Ismaili, I started with Ismaili friend to tour in interior Sindh because the Ismaili, you can find still many Ismaili villages in the very southern part of Pakistan along the, the the seashore. And uh, it's how I started to be in touch with the Sufi culture of Sindh. And so after I completed my study on the Ismaili uh, in Sindh and in South Asia, uh, I also started other research project on the Sufi, on Sufism in Sindh.
1: Um, and it's interesting because many of these themes um, are themes that emerge in this book. And so it's nice to hear a genealogy of where they're coming from, of both your your intellectual and academic journeys. Um, so I wonder if we could start with some of the main themes of the book. The, the book is in, uh, divided into three parts and has uh, 12 chapters, and there's a lot of rich detail, um, textual detail. Um, so before we go into some of those details, I wonder if we could um, focus on the main ideas. And one of the main ideas you're trying to engage with or develop is this idea of vernacular knowledge. And you contrast that with colonial knowledge kind of in an Edward Saidian sense. So can you tell us um, what is this phrase vernacular knowledge and what is the argument that you're making in this book um, in developing this phrase?
0: Yes, sure. Yeah, so I, I start from the beginning because, you know, when you are uh, starting to work on a kind of a historical and anthropological uh, perspective on scene, what we call in French but also in English, uh, historical anthropology, uh, of course the first issue you have to deal with is that there is uh, a, a lack of sources before the... Colonial period of Sindh. Uh, the British conquered Sindh in 1843. So, before 1843, you have a number, of course, of historiographical uh, treatises written in Persian, but not that much. And if you want to study, for example, some uh, Sufi sites, uh, for example, the pilgrimage city of Sevan Sharif. So it's uh it's really a, a huge uh, problem you have to face, because finally the first detailed sources are the colonial sources. And you know, maybe years back, the first time one of the first time I came to Karachi, I went to a bookshop and I asked uh, the the bookseller, uh, I'd like to uh, see some books on anthropology of Sindh. And the guy told me, oh yeah, of course, I have a very good book uh, related to uh, anthropological approach to sin. He came back and he gave me Richard Burton's book on the races that inhabited the Valley of the Hindus, published in 1851. So, Of course, it was really a big issue because my first uh, reaction was, oh, my God, but Richard Burton was an officer in the East India Company. uh, So it's a kind of colonial source. And what could I do with this? And unfortunately, you you cannot balance, uh, for example, Burton's uh, uh, version of on the society of our religions, with with other sources, especially uh, vernacular sources, because uh, of course the. That- there are uh, very few manuscripts and so on. But uh, I mean, these uh, vernacular sources uh, do not uh, take the same uh, approach, the same perspective, because uh, Richard Burton claimed himself to be an ethnologist. He used this work in his publication, uh, Devoted to, uh, uh, to Sin. So it was a a main issue immediately when I started to uh, work on SIND. And also uh, because this book finally, you know, resulted from a a very long uh, study. Uh, I started maybe 15 years back. And um, so, uh, yeah, what was very interesting uh, for me and what could maybe challenge some opinion uh, in the field of the post-colonial studies was that uh, for the making of the vernacular knowledge in sin, uh, you can identify two distinct phases. And The first phases uh, was implemented by the British or by the European, because there is a main uh, figure who played a leading role in this process. He was German, but uh, he was also an Anglican priest, so he was a missionary uh, for the Anglican church. So the first phase, this uh, European uh, play A leading role because I mean that they started to collect uh, different folk tales uh, and also very important, uh, they published the first Sufi poetry in Sindhi. And it was this uh, German missionary, um, his name was uh, Frere, who published in 1866 the first ever printed book in Sindhi, and it was a very important Sufi poetry uh, composed by Shabdul Latif in uh, uh, the 18th century and named uh, Shad Jorisalo. So it was the first phase. But very interestingly, uh, some time after this first publication, the new Sindhi intelligentsia started to appropriate themselves uh, what the British had started to build. Uh, this um, publication in Cindy and themselves, uh, to some extent, they also started to objectify uh, their own Sufi literature. Uh, of course, they also uh, criticized the version that the German missionary had printed of the uh, Shajori Salo. So they started to bring other uh, manuscripts of the same Shajori Salo, but also they went finally to realize uh, that they had a uh, vernacular culture and in this vernacular culture, uh, Sufism, especially Sufi literature, was playing a leading role.
1: Mm-hmm. And and I think here um, you develop this idea of the Sufi paradigm, right? And how both the the British, but also this in the intelligentsia are yeah. actively participating in creating, as you say, an objectification of Sufism. So can you um, explain that to us a little bit more of what you mean by the Sufi paradigm um, and why you're not, for instance, using ideology or culture, as you explain yeah. think, in the first mm-hmm. chapter.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, but first also I want to uh, precise that uh, uh, what the British, the British did, of course, it was not for, uh, uh, how to say, uh, for studying Sindhi literature. Also, okay, because when this uh, German uh, priest Trump started to work on Cindy literature and when he he wanted to publish the Shadjuri Salo uh, the main purpose was to educate the British officer in Cindy and in fact Trump was funded by the commissioner in Cindy Sir Bartolf and in fact Sir Bartolf asked him to do this work. Okay. So the purpose of this publication was to allow this, uh, the British officer of the East India Company, because it uh, it first and then after, of course, for the Raj, uh, to learn Cindy. And because when they were posted in the countryside, so that they can more easily uh, interact with the local population, so the british they had no interest uh, with Sufism, with Sindhi literature um, as such and um, yeah. So but after the printing of the Shad Salo, uh, Sufism and especially Sufi literature uh, as a kind of intellectual construct started to work as a paradigm. Why? Because all the main topic, all the main concepts uh, addressed by Latif in his Shad Jorisalo uh, work like a paradigm. And from this topic and concept, all the Sindhi in the second half of the uh, 19th century uh, started to identify all the literature, all the Sufi literature, but also Hindu devotional literature uh, that can fit this paradigm, uh, for example, you can find uh, the importance of the Vada uh, wujud, the uh, unicity, unity uh, of uh, existence. Uh, you can find the importance of music but uh, conceive as a mystical past and uh, in uh, several uh, Sufi poets from Sindh, in fact, music, is represented as being meditation, zikr. Uh, you can find also the interaction between the Sufi figure and the jogi as a model of asceticism. So you can find all this uh, from the Shah Salo and all this uh, topic and concept became a paradigm because they were used as such by the the, other Sinfi authors in uh, the second part of the 19th century and also in the early 20th century.
1: And I think one of the things that the book really uh, fascinatingly highlighted and was important is really the interaction with multiple religious traditions from Ismaili tradition to, to Hinduism and how this all informed the Sufi paradigm. Um, so can you maybe for some of our listeners who may not know, perhaps give us a sense of what Sindh um w- looked like religiously at this time period that you're engaging with? So maybe the religious topography of the colonial sin and why you think this kind of topography is so important to the argument that you're making about the vernacular knowledge and the construction of a Sufi paradigm?
0: Yeah, so it is true that uh, it's very important to have a look at the religious history of sin uh, before colonization. Um, because if you have a look at this, if you, of course, there uh, are uh, uh, different sources in different languages, but we have very uh, serious studies about the different periods. What I can say is that uh, Sind, surely, because of its very local uh, geographical position, was a kind of refuge for different uh, religions or uh, sects uh, from the Indian side, but also from the Muslim side. Uh, for example, uh, you know, when the uh, Muslim conquered in 718, we have some uh, 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 travels. Uh, books from Chinese pilgrims, and we gave a very interesting description of Sin before the coming of the Muslims, and according to one especially, one Sang, he came to Sin about 50 years before the Muslim conquest, and it's very interesting to see that in Sin, so Sin was uh, mostly uh, Buddhist and also Hindu, but the two dominant schools from uh, Buddhism and uh, uh, Hinduism were uh, what I can coin as heretic schools uh, among both the religions. So they were not regular. They were not the mainstream uh, schools. So already before the muslim came uh, you can see Sind as a kind of refuge from a sect which could have been persecuted in the uh, centers of the different empires and after the muslim so first it's very important to know that uh, the uh, muslim conqueror com- coming from damascus Because it was during the time of the Umayyad Caliphate and Empire. So, this uh, conqueror, General Muhammad bin Qasim, uh, never compelled the local people to convert because he was using the system of jizya, you know, and uh, so it means that the local population if they wanted to keep their previous religion, they had to pay a tax and they were they were protected by the uh, Muslim state. And in fact, it was on a very long uh, process that finally the population of Sin became Muslim in majority. And in this respect, two Muslim uh, uh, movements play a very important role in the in this uh, conversion, so to say. Uh, the first one were the Ismaili, because very soon the Ismaili came to Sindh, and even before the Ismaili created the Uh, Fatimid Empire in Egypt because you know the Fatimid uh, they were Ismaili uh, Caliph they created Cairo City in 969 but even before they were in North Africa in present day Tunisia and from there already they have some um, uh, 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 state uh, which were uh, affiliated to them, especially in Yemen. And from Yemen, some missionary came to Sin. So it means that in the middle of the 10th century, around 950, 960, very soon there was in Sindh an Ismaili stem, uh, who was, which was acknowledging the sovereignty of the Fatimid Empire. So the Ismailis, they came very early in this area, in the Indus Valley. And we know, especially through different vernacular literatures, what was the process for the Ismailis to attract the local population, to convert them. Finally, uh, they were using their ritual. Uh, for example, they were giving a great importance to dance, and uh, only, you know, they were also uh, diffusing a kind of new, a kind of new discourse, uh, especially based on the idea of the savior. And in this part of South Asia, uh, different Hindu uh, cults were waiting for the coming of the savior so it played a very important role because this ismaili didn't ask the hindu for example to convert totally so to say to islam they only started very gradually uh, trying to convince them that the savior was to come very soon and this savior finally uh, was the Living Imam of the uh, Ismaili. So it was the first, uh, uh, I would say, uh, attempt and the first interaction uh, between uh, uh, really the Muslim and the Hindu. And later on, especially during the 13th century, the Sufi came to the Indus Valley, and especially uh, there was a very uh, important Sorawardi. Uh, master, Baudin Zakaria. He stayed in Multan, but in the 13th century, Multan was a part of Sindh. And also, uh, apparently, he used the same uh, uh, strategy than the Ismaili. So he didn't ask the local population to become Muslim on the spot. First, He started to attract them uh, to use also the rituals uh, and give this ritual a new meaning. And especially, um, yes, with the importance he gave also to music, to dance, etc. So it was a very long process uh, of the local population from Hindu or Buddhist to become muslim and for sin proper according to the historical sources it is not before the 15th 16th century that the population was muslim in majority but uh, of course we don't have a real uh, demographic statistic uh, for those uh, historical periods Uh, as you know the first census uh, were uh, organized by the british in 1871 and so according to this census the population of sin was between, it depends because the census were organized every 10 years so the Hindu population were between 20 and 25 percent of the total population of sin and the Muslim of course there were maybe 70 percent but among the 70 percent there was uh, Uh, an important uh, Shia minority, maybe uh, 20-25%. And regarding the Hindu, so they were between 20-25% and of the total population of Sin, but it's very important to know that they play a leading role in two fields. First, economy, because most of the trade was in the hands of uh, trader Hindu castes, and especially in Karachi, which was booming after the British came to scene. Uh, So they were very important in the economy and in trade, especially, it was in the second half of the 19th century. And second, also, they were playing a leading role in the administration, uh, because when the British came to Sindh, uh, they found a caste, a Hindu caste named the Amil, which was specialized into administration, even before them. This caste of the Amil uh, knows Persian because all the administration uh, was done in Persian. And so they were having very important positions in the pre-British administration. Some of them were even prime minister of the Muslim kings before the British. So the British, they kept this elite, so to say, the Amil. And so the Amil, were very well-educated, and they hold, you know, the most important part of the administration in revenues, in justice, even in education itself. They were the ones we created in Karachi and Hyderabad, uh, the first uh, colleges, the first uh, high schools, uh, etc., so it was the uh, the distribution of the uh, between the Hindu and the Muslim uh, in colonial Sindh
1: and I think that is very helpful for us in terms of thinking about some of um the um uh, kind of exchanges that unfold and between the British and the Crete and the development of particular type of literatures that you talk about. Um, so I wonder if we could shift to some of the themes of uh, part two of the book. And in part two of the book, you're introducing uh, figures, British Orientalist figures like Richard Burton and also the, um, um, Ernest Trump. And so I know Trump may elude <laughs> a, a different Trump in a contemporary moment, but we're talking about the Anglican priest in um, Orientalist time. And so how did these figures, particularly um, in terms of their engagement with the Sufi poet Shah Abdul Latif and the <laughs> of the Shah Joe Rasalo, which you've already kind of alluded to in your comments um what what did they do in terms of printing these material and what what was a consequence perhaps of this material which then would later go on to influence um um a cindy literati or intelligentsia, which i think is the second part of your broader argument
0: yeah 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 you're you're right you 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 named the two most important uh, uh, people in this uh, process of uh, vernacularization and of making this uh, Sufi paradigm. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, it's very interesting. And of course, once again, we are back to the uh, different issues, uh, of the, uh, post-colonial studies. But uh, because, for example, if I take the case of Richard Francis Burton, he's a very uh, famous uh, uh, orientalist, but he's also very controversial because, you know, this uh, Richard Francis Burton, he was an officer in East India Company and he was not really an orientalist. Uh, 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 as a specialist, so to say, Uh, because, I mean, he didn't really study in english university uh, the different languages the different uh, literature and also what is very interesting is very critical toward the classical uh, british orientalist starting with william Jones, the famous uh, founder of the uh, Asiatic Society of Bengal and uh, also of uh, different other things. So uh, himself, he introduced himself as a kind of independent uh, scholar, adventurers, and uh, and also is very famous in the academic world because he came to different uh, Continents. He started with South Asia, but after you know, he was very famous in the uh, uh, Middle East because he was one of the first European to perform the pilgrimage to Mecca under disguise, and so he published his travels to Mecca. And he was also a translator of the. Uh, Thousand and one nights, I think. (laughs) No, because in French it's very different, the title. So I think in English it is the one. Okay. But, uh, you know, the specialists of this uh, Middle East sometimes uh, don't really trust him. And uh, some of them uh, even put that he was a big... Liar, so that uh, okay, I I didn't investigate uh, really this issue, but did he really uh, visit Mecca, etc., etc., and also. Is very famous because he went to Africa, because after being officer in the East India Company, he became a diplomat. So he was posted around the world in, in different countries, including Africa. And in Africa, he was an explorer, an adventurer, because he wanted to discover the uh, spring of the Nile River. And Once again, he published many books about this issue. So what is very uh, fascinating with Richard Burton is that, you know, he's very well-known, but from different parts of the academia. Uh, For example, the specialist on Africa knows knows Burton for his work on Africa. The specialist of the Middle East, they know him uh, for his work on Mecca, uh, Arabian Nights, etc. But they don't know him for what he did in South Asia. And uh, for me, South Asia in Richard Burton career is very important because it was his formative years. You know, after leaving England, he went to uh, Bombay when he enrolled in the East India Company, uh, first he was posted in uh, Baroda, Vadodara, for some months. But on the spot, he started to learn languages, and he was very good in learning languages. Everybody testified about this uh, ability he had, uh, and after he went to Sin. So, in Sindh, he spent maybe five years, no more, but uh, he published thousands of pages. And what is very innovative in his approach, it is that he adopts a kind of pre-ethnographical approach. And as I said previously, he claims himself to be uh, an ethnographer. Uh, so this is something about him, but of course, uh, also in his approach, you can find a number of imperialist uh, features because he was a British, he was in an officer and, you know, he came to scene very soon after the British conquest. So. Uh, He was very close to the uh, British conqueror of sin, General Napier, and he was very admirative because Napier was a conqueror, the conqueror of sin. So, of course, uh, Burton had also a lot of prejudices about sin. He used words such as barbarian, uh, savages, about the Sindhi, even about the Sindhi language. But, um, Uh, despite these imperialist features, uh, he was the first to prove that, for example, Sindhi was a distinct language, because before him, uh, the British used to say it was a kind of dialect, a kind of patois of Hindi. He was the first to clearly state there was a Sindhi Literature and in mid 19th century it was quite important because in the representation of the uh, of humanity in in those times, you know, uh, a, a people with a literature was almost civilized people, almost. But it was a condition to be among the civilized uh, uh, people. Uh, around the world. So he was uh, the first to clearly state and contradict in his British-European predecessor that there was a Cindy literature. And for his uh, demonstration, he was using the Shadjori Salo, this famous Sufi poetry. But even for the Shadjori Salo, it's very amazing because you can find very contradictory statements. So sometimes he said that uh, Shabdolatif uh, had to deal with a very barbarous language, but simultaneously he, he will put that there are wonderful poetry in the Shah uh, Juli Salo. So there is all these uh, contradictions. But uh, uh, I would say that he played a very important role in this uh, respect. Uh, so uh, especially when he provided evidence there was a distinct Sindhi language and that there was also a Sindhi uh, literature. Uh, so finally, you know, when uh, Trump and Trump, so yeah, it is Trump, but with double P. But I think that both have German origin. It is another topic. Yeah. So uh, wh- when Trump came to uh, to sin as a missionary first, uh, yes, already you know uh, Burton had published uh, his uh, books, especially the. The books, he published two books in uh, 1851. But uh, Trump also, uh, I would say that, uh, uh, like Burton, you know, you you can find this uh, dual uh, uh, representation of Cindy literature. So, of course, for him, uh, the Cindy, they are not civilized. They are uh, barbarians. And on the other side also is very admirative, especially of sharp poetry. But in the preface of this first edition of the Shadjuri Shalo, uh, finally published in 1866, he explained that initially he didn't want to publish this Sufi poetry. He wanted to publish folk tales in Sindhi, and he, had that, he added that he had collected uh, many, many different uh, folk stories. Uh, he, he spent times with bards, with Cindy bards, and that he had collected, he had put in uh, writing form uh, the different uh, oral literature of the Cindy. But he said that it was too difficult to find a proper version because you know, for a single story story, he had got so many different versions. He would have taken too much time for him to 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 edit a proper version, so that's why he turned to the Shadjuri salo because even if before his publication the Shadjuri Salo was also uh, uh, an oral a part of oral literature, he could select six or seven manuscripts of the Shadjuri salo, and from these different manuscripts uh, he finally edited and published his own version of this Shadjuri uh, Salo but was it what is also very interesting it is that this third edition and printing of the Shadjuri Salo was made in Germany in Leipzig and for this Trump had to uh, ask the printer to make to build the Cindy fonts for the publication. Uh, but uh, I, I would say that Trump had built his own Cindy script, and so now it is not used as such. But uh, despite this, uh, we can read uh, still his uh, printing of the Shadjuri Salo.
1: So it is fascinating that you have the British engaging uh, with the sources almost for other reasons, right? To engage with the literature to, um, um, and it seems like the British were not so directly always interested in Sufism per se, but they were kind of accidentally engaging with it. But what is fascinating, I think, and when you discuss in chapter seven and chapter eight is the way in which these, sources, these print material and um, publications, which were available, then goes on to inform um, the local intelligentsia, the literati, um, uh, and the Sindhi culture, right? And who then are also engaging these materials and then adding to the Sufi paradigm, but in other fascinating ways. Um, so one of the figures that you introduce, um, and I apologize if I pronounce name wrong, is Mirza Khalik-Speg. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk about how uh, a figure like that is also adding to the building of the Sufi paradigm, having engaged with these materials, but is trying to make other kinds of interventions about what he thinks Sufism is um, and kind of reclaim it, I guess, from the British in some way?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, uh, Mirza Kalijbeg is also a very important uh, character in this story of the making, both of the Sufi paradigm and of uh, the, the building of the uh, vernacular knowledge. Uh, because, um, um, yeah, of course, Meza Kaladbeg, uh as his name can attest, was a Muslim, he was a Shia Muslim. And uh, so he is, uh, I would say, a kind of... Um, Exemplary uh, scholar from this generation, because himself, you know, he belonged to a family associated with with the kings of Sin, the Talpo, who were ruling Sindh because before the British conquest, and these Talpur, they were defeated by the British army of General Napier in eighteen forty three. So there were part of the court, Mirza Kalijbek's family, uh, belonged to the court of this Talpur family. So, of course, after the conquest, the British conquest, uh, most of the Talpur, they were uh, compelled to leave Sindh and they were uh, put in different uh, places in South Asia or in other part of the world, they were so in exile and all the court. All their court, they were. I would say they lost their job, and they were so uh, in a very, very difficult situation. So many among them, they started to go to the British school. The the British just uh, created schools uh, from the eighteen fifties onwards, and where uh, the the student can learn the. Uh, the Western uh, sciences or the new sciences uh, which were spreading in the 19th century. So, Meza Khalid went to that some uh, British school in uh, Hyderabad, and finally he became um, a civil servant for the East India Company. But he was also, of course, very interested by his own culture, the Cindy culture. Uh, You know, for example, uh, when there was the first printing of the Shadjuri Salo, uh, he was, of course, uh, very young. He was a boy. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have uh, details, but we can think that he started to uh, read the books the British were printing in Sindhi because of Chad Salo was the first but later on the British of course published other books in Sindhi and not mostly devoted to Sufism. Most of the books they were printed in Sindhi. They were mostly related to the new uh, European sciences such as uh, geometry, mathematics, uh, all this. But um, so also uh, Meza Kalijbeg was himself very fond of uh, devotional literature in Sindhi, uh, Sufi poetry, but also the devotional Shia literature, you know, all this uh, uh, poetry, uh, related to uh, the, the martyrdom um, of Imam hussein at Karbala, uh, this and that. And what is very interesting with him is that it gave two new directions to the uh, construction of the Sufi paradigm, because until now we talked only of Sufi poetry. And uh, Melza Kalijbek was the first to take interest in the life of the Sufi, not only of the poetry they had composed, but also her life, uh, their life, sorry. And uh, so he published in the 1884, if I, if I remember properly, uh, the first biography of Shah Abdul Latif. And... Uh, in this biography, interestingly, he published it first in English and after in Cindy. So probably that he wanted to reach not only the British, but this new intelligentsia, Cindy intelligentsia. Uh, all these people were working in British administrations, and of course so they were uh, talking in English. So it was the first biography devoted to a Sufi of sin. Uh, of course, in the portrait he drew of Shah Abdul Latif in this biography, um, you know, it is not an, a geography. He wants to show that Shah Abdul Latif was a very simple man. He, w- he was living a very simple life and uh uh, that everybody can have access to him. He was talking to all the classes of the society, of all the castes, of the powerful people, of to the, uh, sorry to the powerful people, to the destitute people. He was a very simple man. Uh, also, as I put in my book, I think that he was inspired by. Biography of Prophet Muhammad uh, were published at the same period, and especially one very famous uh, published in Urdu by uh, Saeed Ahmad Khan. And this biography of Prophet Muhammad is also echoing a very famous book published by a French scholar, Ernest Roland, on the life of Jesus, but it is another story. I mean, that there is a, a kind of shifting because all these scholars, uh, they are not satisfied with the uh, traditional hagiographies, uh, the sacred life of the prophets, of the saints, only based on miracles, especially. And so it's very, uh, Uh, important in this biography published by Mirza Kalich Beg. Put in a few words, he wants to to make him accessible to all the classes of Sindhi society. So to some extent, we can even speak of a kind of uh, democratization of Sufism, of the Sufi poets. And the second point, very important, I would say it is in the same uh, uh s- same understanding on Sufism, so it is also an addition to a kind of process of democratization because he gave a lot of importance to f- for explaining the Sufi poetry because for example, for the Shahuri salo of Shabdul Latif even if it is a very popular Sufi poetry, some parts are very, very difficult to understand for a number of reasons. First, because Shabdhu is using very old Sindhi words. I mean that in the 19th century, they were not used anymore, so the people, they cannot understand. Second, uh, of course, in this poetry, there are very mystical uh references uh, uh when I started, I quote uh, the and all these philosophical and even philosophical concepts, so this also was very difficult to understand so Midza Kalijbe gave great importance to explain in Sindhi uh, this concept, this word, knowing also that in uh, this Sufi poetry, a sharp latif, but uh, it is the same case for other Sufi poets, also they use a lot of Arabic, Persian references and concept. And of course, for the uh, simple Cindy man, woman, they could not understand, they could not understand the importance of this concept, of uh, this uh, topic, etc. So in this respect, Mirza Kalitschbeg play a very fundamental role for giving access to all the classes, all the different strata of the Sindhi society far beyond the intelligentsia, far beyond the elite, even far beyond the, I would say, professional Sufi, uh, as, for example, the caretakers of the Sufi larga, very
1: numerous in Sindh. Yeah, I found this um, part two very rich um, in, in terms of you mapping some of the ways in which um, um, these uh, Sindhi literati were being also informed by maybe uh, a European or ideas, you know, such as... Uh, um, not only European, but North American as well, like um, the Theosophical Society and Helena Blavatsky. So it's just such a rich, rich uh, yeah. section. Um, I wonder if we could shift to the final uh, part, uh, part three. And here you're kind of bringing all of these different chapters together and you're introducing to us this idea of um, devotional regimes of knowledge, which um, I think you're framing based on vernacular culture. And you're contrasting that to normative regimes of knowledge. Um, and this, these uh, last three chapters are really engaging with kind of some of the ways in which, um, you know, there's different forms of reformism that's happening both in Muslim communities, but also Hindu communities. And everybody's kind of in the state where they're trying to define boundaries. Um, um, and so I think this idea of devotional regimes of knowledge is helping us think about um, the Sufi paradigm and how you know the paradigm is a vernacular knowledge of sin so can you unpack that a little bit for us and what you why you thought that um, devotional regimes of knowledge was perhaps a productive way to situate some of the arguments you're making in this book yes
0: <laughs> yeah so i i mean that uh, until the late uh, 19th century um, the the uh, the the fundamentals of religious culture of sin were informed by the Sufi paradigm. Uh, so the Sufi paradigm, it is based on the kind of a uh, devotional conception of religion. So it means that uh, the most important part of religion is not to follow what is considered as being the sacred scripture, to follow literally. Uh, for example, for Muslim. Uh, you are not supposed to do exactly all what your sacred scriptures, starting with the Quran, but also the Hadith. Uh, so you don't have to do literally all what is written in this uh, uh, sacred scripture. Uh, but for many different reg- uh, reasons, and of course there are many uh, intricate processes in this, but also they have been uh, well studied. Uh, after the shock provoked by British colonization in South Asia and the uh, total domination of the British on uh, the society and the economy and the political power, uh, the Indians, but y- you can observe such a phenomena in all uh, the world uh, which were colonized by the European, so the local population, namely the Indians, started to try to understand what had happened. In other words, of course it's uh, put in very brief words, but uh why did this European uh, succeed in submitting them to their power? And uh, so the different answers were given to this uh, fundamental question. But an important part of the answers and what is very interesting that you can find such a, such an answer both among the Hindu and among the Muslim, I'm talking about India. Uh, yeah, they find the answer that they had forgotten their tradition. They are distorted their own tradition. They were not doing the right thing. They were not following uh, rightly and properly, the tradition. And when I talk about tradition, of course, especially religious tradition, because the religious tradition was framing mostly the values, the ideals of these societies. So if we take the Muslim, um, they wanted to go back, but you can find the same process in the Middle East among the Uh, arab-speaking population and others yeah they started to turn back to the sacred literature and they started to publish books in which the scholars for islam the muslim scholars well tell were telling the people this this you can do this this you cannot do because it is non-Islamic, because this practice, this ritual, you cannot find it in your sacred scripture. So it means it is un-Islamic, so you have to stop performing this ritual. And in the late, in the last quarter of the 19th century, in Sindh, you can find such uh, books published in Sindhi. Uh, where the Muslim scholars explain what is Islam, what is true Islam, and even among the Hindus, but even among the Sikhs, and e- even among different sects, uh, you can find these books published in Sindhi, where each religious tradition wants to build what I call a normative regime of knowledge, and this normative regime of knowledge, uh, it means that they want to give the right norms, what they think to be the right norms of their own tradition. And uh, so the issue I want to address in the part three is how the building of this uh, normative regime of knowledge are challenging the Sufi paradigm, uh, uh, especially under uh, the shape of the Shah Salo and others. So finally, the scholars who are constructing the normative regime of knowledge are they challenging, weakening the Sufi paradigm? So it is uh, one of the points I want to address. But also uh, what I observe at the turning point of the 19th and 20th century is that there were other attempts, uh, always among the Sindhi literati, to not to build other devotional regime of knowledge, Uh, I mean beyond Sufism, but some uh, devotional tradition wanted to build uh, a community and also a tradition, a unified tradition and a unified community. Uh, For example, if I take the case of the Ismaili, You know, the Ismailis or the Shia Muslim, but they have a very specific religious tradition in which they had incorporated to uh, some uh, Hindu uh, concept and also ritual. So finally, we can say that they have built a a distinct uh, religious tradition, okay? But in the late 19th century, they wanted to harmonize all the different versions of their tradition, because it is a main thing to know. Until 19th century, all what we call now Muslim, Hindu, Sikhs, they were very fragmented uh, and local community. And each community in a given area, or even in a city, even in a village, they... Are uh, adapted, constructed a special form of this tradition. So, these devotional regimes, such as the Ismaili, they wanted to harmonize the tradition uh, in South Asia, in Sindh, but also in Punjab, in Gujarat, in Rajasthan, in other uh, uh, provinces of the Indian subcontinent. And so uh, what I want also to address in the third part is to what extent uh, the building of this uh, devotional, uh, the, especially the making of this unifying process among the different uh, devotional traditions. So they were also challenging uh, the Sufi paradigm. So it's uh, mostly uh, what was my purpose in the third part.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, there's so many wonderful, fascinating, rich details in all of the individual chapters, um, and you've laid it out really well in a very clear way, and um, and so we can, I think, talk and talk about all the details, but I'm also very mindful of your time, so um, I think for readers who are, and listeners who are really interested, hopefully they will pick up the book um, as this is a really deep dive of uh, a particular um, geographical um, and historical moment and showcases how the boundaries of Sufism are really being contested by these multiple um, figures and uh, uh, people in in power, um, but also Indigenous voices in the case of Sindh. I wonder, uh, before I let you go, if you could tell us a little bit about um, some of the projects that you're working on right now. I know before we started talking, um, you were mentioning how busy things are in in Paris with the teaching and everything, but perhaps you have some um, projects undergo that you're working on slowly. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, you know, because finally, also through uh, Sufism and my study uh, devoted to Sufi culture, uh, I went to focus on uh, uh, what I w- will call the shared legacy, uh, especially uh, between uh, Hindu and Muslim. And so uh, now I'm working on a project d- related to a secret figure uh, which is shared by both Muslims and Hindu, along the Indus River. And this secret figure is known under different names such as Julal, Uderolal, but also Hwaja Rizal. So uh, mostly I'm working on this uh, topic.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well I'm so grateful for your time today um and for you um joining us to have a conversation about your fantastic and rich new book. Um hopefully it'll bring um uh, listeners will pick up the book and um be in touch if they have more questions for you. Um, but thank you so much, Professor Bovin.
0: Please, thank you. Thank you.
1: And that was my conversation with Professor Michel Bovin about his new book, The Sufi Paradigm and the Makings of a Vernacular Knowledge in Colonial India, The Case of Sindh, 1851 to 1929, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. We're so glad to have you along. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to having you join us again next time. Stay well and take good care.